When we started realizing that most people are missing that problem-solution fit, we focused on that as the most important thing that we do. Welcome to Lawagon Live. This week we have Shadi Mahassal, co-founder and CEO of Surf and Code, and product manager for the launch of Skype Wi-Fi, speaking to us. Surf and Code is a product studio that partners with hand-picked founders whose missions they believe to be exceptional standalone businesses. Before co-founding it, Shadi was VP of Product at Venium, supporting the future of mobility in smart cities, which he'll tell us his predictions for. He's also overcome the amazing challenge of building and launching Skype Wi-Fi. Shadi has worked at Microsoft, has been a founder, advisor and investor in innovative technology companies within mobile communication, media and e-commerce. He is active in the startup community in Silicon Valley, London and Porto as an investor and advisor. Keep listening to hear all his secrets to success. My name is Shadi Mahasal. Um, I don't know how to describe myself other than to say that I'm a failed engineer. Uh, a failed engineer in a sense that I spent all my youth looking forward to becoming an electrical engineer and went to school at University of Massachusetts, graduated. Uh, before that, in my junior year, which is the third year in the first semester, I realized I hated engineering. I did not want to be an engineer. I was going to drop out of school. Uh, and one of my advisors, luckily for me, convinced me to take a co-op program where I work in a company for six months and I go back to school for six months, a semester on and off for three semesters just to try on engineering. Uh, and I went there and I loved engineering. Uh, I loved everything that I did. And later in my career, I realized that everything I did there was actually product management, nothing to do with engineering. Engineering was like 10% of the job, but I made the decisions that allowed that company to actually create a product that actually went to market. And in that case, I was actually building a very important component of these um, communication devices that live in your heart. And when you have a heart attack, this thing zaps you and you know, it regulates your heart. And I was building this little thing and I, you know, I made decisions on it. And so I was hooked on engineering, went back to school, got my, my uh, degree and got my first engineering job. And within a few weeks on the job, became the product manager. And so I knew I, I should just give up. So I became a product manager very early before that term was actually what it means today. And, and in fact, it's today going back to the days when I became a product manager. Where as a product manager, I was very involved in talking to the customers, uh, understanding the problem that they need to solve, and actually helping them find the solution using our technology. Even though I was in a hardware business at the time, uh, I, I, you know, that challenge, that ability to go and really discover what's important, what is the problem to be solved, started being embedded in me. That job led me to creating my first startup. Uh, accidentally along the way, in finding the, the problems that, um, that this our clients were having, I realized that there's a product we could build that would be amazing for our clients and our company, but my employers didn't want to do it, and they suggested that if I were to go build, build a company to do it, they would partner with me. And that got me on the entrepreneurial path, and 14 startups later, I found myself in surfing code. Uh, so don't go down the entrepreneur path. It's, it's addictive, yeah. Accidentally, one of the startups led me to Skype. So I lived my whole life where my largest company was 
roughly about 50 employees. And then I find myself at this unbelievably creative, amazing company at the time was about 500 employees called Skype. And I was lost and it was amazing. And, uh, but I realized after starting there, they brought me in just for my startup experience. And I was building a new kind of team that is very entrepreneurial with them um, that is not requiring the full company support. So we, I ran a renegade startup within Skype called Skype Wi-Fi uh, and built that and you know, found myself one day waking up in Microsoft, a 150,000 employee company. I was lost there. <laughs> so um, luckily for me, I was in London and that afforded me the opportunity to go back to, to startups. And now you're at Surf and Code. And now we're Surfing Code, which is a startup. Uh, so Surfing Code is a startup for startups. So um, I'd worked as a founder. I'd worked as a first uh, employee in an early stage company on several occasions. And I had seen things at larger companies, both you know, the, Skype, uh, the, the size of Skype that's scaling super fast, or the size of Microsoft that is very mature and has very regimented structures and everything and realized the early stage founders don't have a lot of the support that they, that they could have in order for them to succeed. Uh, they have advisors, they have mentors, but guess what? When those guys walk out of the room, the founder's on their own. They're making their own decisions, they're making their own mistakes, uh, and at the end of the day, for many founders, it's their own money on the line. It, you know, so so it's it's super risky, and they're they're not having that early stage equity uh, or the equity participant, a co-founder. And um, I realized that I could help many different founders, so I'm not a burden to one company or or you know one founder, and I could help them in the point that most founders fail frequently, which is defining what to build. That very early stage um, problem that most founders have is that they get an idea and they immediately think of the size of yacht that they want to buy. Uh, and everything in between is just detail. You know, I got to check this box and check this box. And it's sometimes naivety and sometimes it's, you know, hopeothesis because we hope and we convince ourselves that we're on the right path. But there's a lot of objectivity that, that you need to do, and, and that's what Surfing Code is there, to you know, smack some sense into some people. <laughs> and so how do you find your founders? Um, actually through a lot of recommendations. So, um, so we, we don't have a structured program. Um, part of what we wanted, so Surfing Code has now existed for uh, two years in my head and 18, 19 months officially. So we, we started in January of 2018 in Porto, um, and we took on our first founder after I had gone through about 50 or 60 founder interviews uh, before I picked the first one. And I knew the first one is critical for us because this was going to be the showcase that we wanted to double down on, that we want to you know, totally nail it. Um, and so I ruled out a bunch of founders either because of geography or because of incompatibility with the person or we simply didn't think there was anything in there or we just didn't think that we're the right people to deliver on this problem. Uh, so we, we ended up actually creating a checklist of the types of founders we wanted. We tossed that out <laughs> after a year of working with, with the founder. So it, it's good to get you know, uh, working uh, in, real, in real terms. 
And we, we picked this founder for a lot of great reasons. I would still pick them again, but we sort of blindsided ourselves to a couple of key points that weren't obvious at the time, but a year later became obvious. Uh, and that ended up slowing us down. So at the same time, we wanted to pick our business model to be uh, very selective about the founders and realize that that's actually not the most important thing that we should be doing, but rather look for people who are hardworking, who are passionate about their idea, who really are eager to solve this problem, have a personal relationship with why this problem needs to be solved, uh, and, and work with those people because those are the people that will never give up. And in some cases, they're the most annoying guys, but I love them because of their annoyance. And so, so that, that's, that's kind of who we're working. So VCs send us uh, founders, uh, friends of friends, and now the word's spreading around Portugal, so we're getting a lot of Portuguese founders. But largely, we focus on UK, uh, pan-European, and Portuguese. Okay. And why have you launched in Porto? Porto is, um, it was the obvious choice, of course. Where, where else would you go? Um, no, I, I, again, through life, so I lived most of my life in different countries. I've been, I've lived on every continent except, uh, actually except Australia and whatever the one up north. Uh, and so, so, um, so I've been ready to move for something that's interesting. And we lived in London. I used to be in Silicon Valley. I worked for 15 years in startups there. Um, with Skype, I moved to London, ended up being here for seven years, and I didn't feel like I was uh, connected culturally and um, after California weather-wise to London. Uh, so I wanted water, I wanted the sea, and coincidentally, one of uh, my VC friends suggested I look at a portfolio company that they have in Porto, of all places, uh, and I got excited about the company, I got excited about the founder and the team, and on a snap decision, like my first visit to Porto, within two hours I decided to move to Porto on meeting the team. A week later I started working as the chief product officer at this company, which is building amazing technology to connect autonomous cars. Uh, I mean, stuff of the future. Loved Porto, but realized that there's a very huge uh, well-deserved academic flair to the company, lots of deep tech, um, and lots of passion to innovate from a technology standpoint. So they don't really need a, a, you know, a crazy commercial product guy nagging on them. Uh, and I realized that I could do a lot more for the founders that I was still in touch with in, in Porto. So very quickly, uh, in, in the UK, so very quickly I decided to um, set up Surf and Code. The, the question became, should I set up in London? Should I set up anywhere else in Europe or you know, in Portugal? Uh, when I realized London is probably not the best place, it's too competitive for uh, the types of uh, talent that we wanna hire. And if we set up here, we would be one of millions of companies that are awesome. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't want to go raise billions of dollars to go shine and you know, create a fund. So London was definitely out of the question. The rest of Europe, I felt that either Berlin or Munich or, um, or Barcelona were, were interesting. But the fact was Porto, I felt, uh, or Portugal in general was up and coming with Web Summit moving there. Um, so the decision came down to Lisbon versus Porto. And um, I chose Porto mainly because it was not Lisbon. 
mainly because in, when you, people think of Portugal, they immediately think Lisbon. And Lisbon is beautiful, arts, uh, innovation, Daimler and Amazon and Google and Microsoft have innovation hubs there. So it's still hard to compete for talent, but Porto is in the north and most of the universities are in the north and most of the industries in the north. So if you're Portuguese and want a world-class job, you either find it in the north or you move out of Portugal. Uh, and so we said, okay, let's be that, that place where everyone can come. And we, my kids and my wife were already settled in, in Porto. We have our surf spot. And so it, it, was, it was obvious. Sounds amazing. Um, so earlier you mentioned Silicon Valley uh, and you were there during the golden years of tech startup. Yeah. Um, so what did you do there and before Skype and then how did, well, you mentioned how you got into product management, but yeah, so, so, um, I built my first company out of, after, um, my first job, uh, at, uh, this large semiconductor company and my, my first company required me to build, uh, uh, commercial large scale manufacturing, uh, operation that builds these super fragile semiconductors in a place that at the time had never built that kind of technology. Uh, and the best place to build it is in Asia. So I, find, I found myself moving to Singapore. So my first startup was actually in Singapore. I lived in Singapore for three years. And luckily the partner that uh, invested in the company decided to buy it. So it was a, a good deal for me. And I found myself with cash and living large in Singapore and wanted to get back into something interesting. So a friend of mine had a startup in Silicon Valley. I joined them, I brought him funding from my former investors and joined them in um, Foster City, just south of uh, San Francisco, to build these boxes at the time, hardware that allows you to communicate, to receive voicemail, email, and fax mail. I know Lots of these terms are new, <laughs> but back then they were hot. And you required, you had to have, if you work out of home, you had to have two phone lines, one your, for your voice, one for your fax. You had to have an answering machine. If you're not there, you gotta remember a stupid pin to call it. Well, we brought in voicemail. We, we purposely didn't put any buttons on this thing. So this thing calls you and tells you you've got a fax. And then you put in a phone number where you can send the fax. So it's super innovative. But it was hardware right around the time where Netscape and all the awesome original uh, internet companies were, were being born. I was running around trying to raise money for a hardware startup when all that's happening was, was software. So I gave up. Um, I sold the company to a buyer that was very interested in the technology uh, and found myself going into another hardware company in Silicon Valley, French this time but uh, I was leading the product and business development in, in Silicon Valley, uh, and we were building internet telephony. So if you have this little telephone connected in your house, and I have one uh, in France, in Singapore, wherever, we can call each other for free on the internet um, in the mid-90s. Awesome stuff, really. Uh, so we sold that, um, and uh, one of the guys from that company and myself, we saw two interesting things happen the year the company was being sold. One was Yahoo bought GeoCities. And if you've never heard of GeoCities, I don't blame you. But that was the precursor, one of the precursors of Facebook. GeoCities, amazingly, lets you build a website and publish it 
it's your own page and you people can comment and you know come and ask you questions you can answer real easy to use too uh, and it was big it was the largest uh, kind of user generated content website so yahoo bought geocities yahoo bought um, broadcast.com at the time broadcast.com was mark cuban's company the com the one that made him a billionaire and uh, he sold it to them. They were doing basically broadcasting service on the internet. So a game was happening on TV. These guys streamed it. And my co-founder and I saw user-generated content, you know, and we said, oh, the future video. We've got to create a website that lets anybody with a video camera publish their video on the internet. So we come up with the coolest name, Evio. And we launched this thing. We raised $15 million in... 2000 and we become I was on the face of business week uh, on the cover of business week we hired this guy who was the chief content officer from ABC awesome guys you know big broadcast going to small screen um, but we missed a tiny point timing so we went big on trying to build the content so we were commissioning filmmakers to make super crappy short films just so that we can stream them Actually, I'm very proud of some of them. They later became some of the biggest YouTube stars. Uh, the skateboarding guy on YouTube, one of the largest uh, YouTubers, was one of the very first EVO makers on, our, on my platform. Um, so we, we built that, didn't get anywhere. It was three years before YouTube. And I found myself through a series of startups uh, getting back into building my own rather than um, you know, joining anybody. The last one that I was in was a hard one to build, but now, 10, 12 years later, I'm starting to see proof that now it's happening. So my timing was, was early with that. But that last one led me towards Skype. So um, when Skype came along, uh, they wanted somebody to lead a new business area. Uh, and I was already very immersed. I dissected this whole new area, which involved Wi-Fi and public Wi-Fi hotspots. And I became the right choice, and they moved me to London and ended up building a you know, complete product group within Skype. Okay. Um, and so tell us about, with Skype Wi-Fi, the team formation process and concept development that you... That was, that was a crazy journey. <laughs> so I had nine interviews all the way up to the COO of Skype before they decided to grant me this job. I joined Skype, I moved my family, and I'm running around the company to find out how do I get this feature that you guys demoed to me in Skype for Windows, at the time the largest app. Who, who do I talk to? And invariably every question like that ended up go talk to the CEO. So the CEO was the product manager of the product, there was 120 people with the product something title, but the CEO is the decision maker, so something wasn't working. It was super frustrating because I couldn't get the data that I needed to start building a business case. Um, lucky for me, Skype was going through a transformation. It was just sold by eBay to uh, Silver Lake, a private equity firm, and they were putting together a new agile process. And then I took advantage of that completely. So I knew where they were going. And so I started building the business case for building Skype Wi-Fi, really stealing, buying, cheating, uh, getting engineers to, you know, give me data just on their free time to end up actually creating that uh, value proposition of why we should build this and use this as a business case to go justify uh, 
to the company, which is now thinking, how should we build product, and is asking everyone to propose the products that we, that we should be having. So I proposed that, and it turns out my product, Skype Wi-Fi, became the very first approved new release vehicle, they called them, and the model for creating a product team. So in my thinking, like a startup, I knew I needed a strong engineer, and I found him. He was running this renegade group in the company, very strong, one of the first engineers at Skype. Everyone warned me not to work with him, but I thought he was a genius, you know, convinced him that he should join me. He became my lead engineer. And he and I built together the business case, the, you know, identified the type of developers and designed the support that we needed. And he had been at Skype now for five or six years, so he knew the internal politics and really insisted on how we should build it to avoid any of the um, blocks that we could be having. And without him, it wouldn't have happened. And so we, we justified this, this, um, this case. And then, you know, the minute we went in, we went up like a, an investment committee within the company, the CEO and several of the major, uh, you know, senior executives. And literally, it was a 30-minute meeting where it was like, yep, you have headcount. It was just like that. And so we went and grabbed some of the best engineers that we knew, <laughs> put them on the product, and within weeks, we were, we were up and running. Okay, so obviously you mentioned that Skype was acquired by Microsoft, um, and so then you worked for a big corporation. Um, did you miss the startup buzz? And yeah, I mean, I missed the startup. Um, I, I felt that the startup was always in me, and I, you know, I was operating differently. I was owning this thing. Uh, so I ran Skype Wi-Fi like a startup, to the point where the marketing team won't tweet about something great that we're doing in Skype Wi-Fi. So I created a Twitter handle, Skype Wi-Fi, and I started doing it. The lawyers, you know, got upset, so I got one of the team, the lawyers signed to me to work it out with the lawyers. So we, we were running a complete renegade to the point where we were putting out, you know, partners were issuing press releases and everything uh, that, that were independent, but completely vetted within the process of the company. But I knew that I wanted to go back into a startup. And Microsoft especially, at the time, Microsoft is not the same Microsoft that's running today. It's still a great company. But lots of decisions in Seattle, integration questions, where should this product be? Microsoft had a bunch of other initiatives that were parallel or overlapping with what we did. So how should that go? So there were a lot of questions that, that were happening. None of, you know, I felt responsible for delivering them, but I was itching to go back into startups. Uh, and being in London around 2014, 15 was really a great time uh, if you're looking at startups. Some of the best startups that we look at today were born around this time in London. So I started going to Techstars and Seedcamp and, you know, getting back into uh, that contact. And I started feeling good about it. And when the time was right, I, I you know, without regret, jumped. <laughs> okay. Um, and so... Back to Surf and Code, um, there, you have a, there's a note here about problem-solution fit. Can you describe that? Yeah, um, well, that's what I started talking about. So, so most of the founders we talk to start with an idea and go straight to how do I get that built. Uh, and how do I get that built is the least of your problem. Really, if, if this is an idea, how do you prove that this idea is good? How do you prove that this idea is unique? How do you prove that you're the right person to execute this idea? So there's a lot of homework that you want to do, that if you do, 
actually checks all the lists that an investor wants to see anyway, plus it's work that you do to build all that value that you need to do. Uh, and so there's a step before product market fit, which is the problem solution fit. And oftentimes people don't really think about it, but it's a really tedious, cheap way of finding what's the really golden nugget in this idea that I've got and how do I make it so differentiated and valuable that I'm defending myself and, and my company with it. So there is no process. You, you talk a lot, uh, you hear a lot about frameworks that talk about the, um, you know, lean company framework or uh, agile methodology, and, you know, you build, you iterate, you do all of this. All of that is great if you know what problem you're solving. If you don't know what problem you're solving and are able to describe that in a three, you know, word sentence or something, then, then you're really not, not clear about it. So, um, so when we started realizing that most people are missing that problem-solution fit, we focused on that as the most important thing that we do. So we developed our own framework. And it's nothing genius. It's all about disciplinary process to start with the problem. Define what this problem is. Really look at this problem from the lens of who's having this problem, how big is this problem for that uh, person, um, how big is this problem as a market, if you solved it, what does your win look like if you solved it? Um, how easy is it for someone to solve it? Yeah, very basic questions, but just through going through that thinking, which is, uh, involves asking the question, coming up with the answer, going out and finding data to support it. So running through a loop of validation constantly. With each iteration, you add a new layer of complexity to the question. You expand kind of the, the realm of that problem solution fit that you're looking at up until a point where you start touching on um, what should the product look like? What business model should it be? By extension, does that work in this space? Uh, by extension, how big is the company going to be? Uh, what's the pricing model uh, going to look at? So you start answering a lot of these questions, not necessarily in a lot of detail, but you start framing this so that your user conversations become a lot more informed. And you start really having a gut reality that these users will absolutely pay 50 bucks a month for this. And these ones, We'll never pay for this. And, and now you, you, you already kind of form that opinion. And that helps you build a business case. A along the way, you start actually um, adding new layers like uh, prototyping or wireframing. Uh, and now you're, you're doing that in a lot shorter time because you know a lot more specifically what you're trying to do. You're not discovering the product through wireframing or prototyping. You've kind of already discovered the product, you're only wireframing the proof points that you can go back now and validate that uh, you know, problem solution fit. And as you get more, more validation of this, now you invest in the coding side. Once you get into the coding, the minute what I learned at Skype is the minute you start coding, the minute you write a line of code, you've just created legacy. For the next thousand versions of the product, you've got to go back and support this line of code. So you want to write you know, the least amount of code that you're sure that this is what, what, you're, what you're building. You don't want to meander around the code or you know, do that. So that makes the development cycle a lot faster, which actually gets you to that uh, definition of an MVP that you might have done before or you might have been iterating, but you get closer to that MVP as, as you go through the cycles. Uh, and it started with the problem-solution fit. Um, so something I think a lot of us are interested in, you're also an investor, so what are you interested in and what qualities do you look for in companies? I look for crazy people. Crazier the better. 
Um, no, I, I'm, I'm a, an investor is, is a misleading misnomer. I'm a very, very small, uh, very selective uh, investor opportunist, I should say. So I like people and that's not a, a new thing. So if I see somebody that I feel is unstoppable, uh, is committed, then you, you, you get the sense that you want to help them. You want to help them succeed. And at some point, they're going to need cash. And now the greedy side of you takes over and you say, okay, I can spare some money. Uh, but, but I'm not doing it as a financial investment. I'm doing it more as an extension of my commitment to, to these companies. So I look for um, the ability to take no, uh, the ability to learn, the humble you know, uh, approach, positive attitude. Uh, and the guys that I've worked with, I mean, uh, one of them is here in London, such a diligent, hardworking person that I'm super happy for them. They're now accelerating. They're, they're uh, way beyond product market fit, and they're, they're scaling the company. I was there when he was, um, he and his co-founder were alone, in a, uh, you know, sharing a desk at WeWork, which, which is amazing to see him that way. Um, so it's, it's a, lot, a lot of the hard work. I don't necessarily look for a world-breaking idea. I look for opportunities within the idea. So uh, if somebody wants to build um, something mundane, I look for uh, you know, potential paths that could really be disruptive if you actually succeed at passing through that first or two uh, stage or two beyond proving your product. So are you open to that innovation? Are there pockets of innovation possible in that area? Those are the things that I like to look for. Okay. Um, and so what are your top three bits of advice for anyone here that might be looking for their first job as a product manager? Um, okay. Well, product management is a miserable job. Um, so <laughs> it's the least glorious job. I mean, the saying is if, um, if the product succeeds, you blame the team. It's the team who made it succeed. The developers, the designers, you know, the team. If the product fails, it's the product manager. It, it's obvious. Uh, it's a thankless job. Read more about it. Be careful when, when you go look at it. Um, I look actually, smart is, you know, the standard, I guess, term that you use. But uh, you want to you wanna see an initiative from a person. Uh, you want to see curiosity, I think. Um, there, there's something that, that's hard to describe, but I almost want to see somebody who absolutely, 100% vehemently believes that this is the right path to go, while at the same time is totally, completely protecting, betting completely the opposite way. So it's hard to bet for and against something at the same time, but that's what you've got to do, because you're not looking at forcing something into success or hack growthing something, you're looking at really finding the truth. Uh, and for that, you have to be the most objective person in the room. You have to know when something sucks, call it and let people know that it sucks. You have to know when you've made a mistake. You know, you, ha you, have, you have to be that. You have to be that objectivity has to be there. Uh, and that, I think, is the most important thing. Okay, thank you. Um, and we actually talked about this before the interview, the process for bringing on founders. You mentioned that. I think that might be interesting on, to surf and code. Yeah, so, uh, so how, we found, uh, how we find founders is a lot through uh, people applying on our website or people that we're introduced to. 
every day almost, I get introduced to somebody new. We now are putting together a structured founder program uh, so that we're actually addressing everybody in a scientific way. We're trying to learn from each interview and iterate our own process as well. Um, that's my money. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, we, we, we look for two kinds of founders. So we found that our sweet spot where we can help founders the most is either in the realm of deep tech. So somebody who is a PhD in something, doing something completely deep tech, is the world-renowned guru expert in that machine learning algorithm, in that technology. Uh, usually the value of that algorithm is unlocked, unless you're looking to be acquired, uh, the value of your company that you're going to build is unlocked based on the value of the solution, the end-to-end the -end kind of uh, product that you end up delivering that solves a real-world problem. And that end-to-end -end is where it's really hard. I mean, everyone knows the 80-20 rule. You can build something, uh, you, you, you can get 80% of the time, uh, you, can, you can build 80% of a product uh, in 20% of the time, and it'll take you a lot, lot longer to finish that 20%, but that 20% turns it from being a mediocre thing to an amazing thing. Uh, so in that case of a founder, we actually add that end-to-end -end experience, and we add those processes that maybe to them are boring, and we add that diligence and the structure that helps them grow from an idea stage to a problem-fit stage uh, to now having a team surrounding them that we've helped them hire and train and onboard. Uh, to now having a structure that that team is, you know, uh, delivering on a rhythm and everything while they're doing the core value, but but that team is is looking out for for that end to end. So that that's one. On the other side, we look for the um, commercially expert person. So not tech at all. Really understands the market. Maybe comes from PR or travel or you know whatever industry that that they have a lot of experience in. Uh, but don't have, their blind spot is perhaps technology and product. And those are the people that need more than just peers co-founding something with them. They need a little more of the structure uh, and the ability to trust that you know, the pushback you're giving them or the advice that you're giving them isn't there just to take advantage of them as a vehicle to you know, um, revenue for you, but it's more about uh, having that, that um, experienced team that, that is joining you on the, this journey and looking out, uh, watching your back and, and help, kind of helping you build that. Um, so th those, that's the spectrum of founders. M we have now both sides, uh, in fact. So last year in 2018, we took on just one founder because we got very busy trying to build that founder's problem solution fit. Um, when we took them on, we had no idea what we should be building. In fact, the gentleman we took on didn't have any idea. He just had a hypothesis. PR will be killed by software. I want to be the one that kills it. Try and build the product around that. So, so we started with them. It took us a few months uh, to actually do a lot of interviews. We wanted to go through this process. We wanted to do the things that don't scale just for ourselves to make sure that we know how to do it. The last startup before this one that I had was years ago, so I wanted to make sure that, that we're running this. Um, and then we accelerated that as we started delivering the product. So we actually delivered five versions that sucked before the one that actually started showing the proof. 
Uh, but now we started knowing the points where we add a lot of value, the points where we're actually not valuable. In fact, maybe we shouldn't have done it this way. We should have made the founder go and solve that problem on their own because they end up gaining a new experience or uh, a new talent from that. And that becomes a proof point. So uh, in Q2 this year, we started accelerating based on the program. And now we add two new founders each month. So, um, so it's, it's a quick ramp up. And if we're able to deliver on that, we, we should ramp that up again. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.